Chapter Eleven, The Witch of Salem. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elvira. The Witch of Salem by John R. Music. Chapter Eleven. Adelpha Lesler. Oh, my love's like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love's like the melody that's sweetly played in tune. As fair thou art, my bonny lass, so deep in love am I. And I will love thee still, my dear, till all the seas gang dry. Burns. There are moments in every life when the soul hovers on some dark brink. It may be the brink of atheism, of despair, of crime or superstition. Outside influences go far toward impelling life's voyager on his course. If the current takes a sudden turn, it bears him in a different direction from which he had intended. The human mind is inexplicable. It is not a machine that can be taken apart and analyzed. It is not material that can be grasped and comprehended. It is that mysterious knowing, feeling and willing, independent of circumstances, that immortal, indestructible portion of man called soul. It is governed by no known laws, and at times seems to assume all the caprices of chance. Charles Stevens was a youth of good, strong common sense, yet he could but feel strangely impressed by the words and the awful look of Mr. Paris. The man was surely more than mortal. His voice, hollow and sepulchral, seemed to issue from the tomb. His thin, cadaverous face was sufficient in itself to inspire wonder. Those great, blazing eyes had within them all the fires of lunacy, fanaticism, and cunning. Mr. Paris was nothing more than an unscrupulous bigot. He was ambitious, as is proven by his machinations in getting himself declared the pastor of Salem. He was greedy, as is shown by his taking the parsonage and lands, as well as demanding an increase in his stipend. He was revengeful, as is shown by the way in which he persecuted those who opposed him. He was unscrupulous in his methods, as is proven in the means he employed. He was filled with prejudice, as is shown in his assailing Cora Waters, because her father was an actor. Yet Mr. Paris believed himself a righteous and holy man, walking in the path of the just. Charles Stevens failed to tell his mother of the strange interview with the pastor. Somehow he could not. He unaccountably shuddered when he thought of it and despite the fact that he had little superstition in his composition, he felt at times a strange, instinctive dread at the awful warning of the pastor. Since the evening on which the name of Adelpha Lesler had been mentioned, Cora Waters had been strangely shy and reticent, so that Charles Stevens could not tell her of the interview with Mr. Paris, even if he would. Cora was a remarkable girl. She united in the highest perfection the rarest of earthly gifts, genius and beauty. No one possesses superior intellectual qualities without knowing it. The alliteration of modesty and merit is pretty enough, 
but where merit is great, the veil of that modesty never disguises its extent from its possessor. It is the proud consciousness of rare qualities, not to be revealed to the everyday world, that gives to genius that shy, reserved, and troubled air, which puzzles and flatters you when you encounter it. Cora realized her beauty and genius, but, with that charming versatility, that of right belongs to woman, she had the faculty of bending and modelling her graceful intellect to all whom she met. Her rare genius, however, could not brook the cold reproofs of the bigoted Paris. The flower which might have ornamented his chapel, and filled the little church with sweetest perfume, was withered by the chilling frosts of bigotry and prejudice. A player could yield no perfume for Christ, and the sweet musical voice was stilled, and the heart so full of love, emotion and religion was chilled and driven into exile. But she lived and hoped in her own little world. The sunlight of love was on her heart, until the name of Adelpha Lesler shut out that sunlight, and left all in darkness and despair. Though Cora was excommunicated for being the child of a player, she never let go her hold on Christ. Her father, strolling actor as he was, had taught her to look to God for everything, and in her hour of trial she knelt in the seclusion of her room, and prayed that this cup might pass from her lips, if it be the Lord's will. But if not, she asked God to give her strength to bear her suffering and trials. She freely forgave Mr. Paris, for she believed his persecution of herself and others was through mistaken zeal. With Charles Stevens she was more shy than she used to be. She kept aloof from him for two or three days, until her conduct became noticeable, and Charles one day sought her in the garden for an explanation. "'Have I offended you, Cora?' he asked. She turned her frightened eyes to his for a moment, and answered, No. Then why do you avoid me? I have scarcely seen you for three days. She was overwhelmed with hope and confusion for some moments. Then, with a faltering voice, she said, Did you wish to see me? I did, Cora. I would not give offence to you for the world, and I feared I had in some way wounded your feelings. "'Charles, was not Mr. Paris here the other morning?' "'Yes.' "'You went away with him. I saw you through my window.' "'I did. Why did he come?' "'Don't ask me about that man. He is one whom I would to God I had never known.' "'Don't speak so of him, Charles. Cora, he is a bad man. He is the pastor. For all that, he is cruel and bloodthirsty. I know it, I feel it. Cora shuddered, and made a feeble attempt to defend the pastor who had persecuted her. But Charles, who had the retaliating spirit of humanity in his soul, declared he was a pious fraud and a disgrace to his cloth. On their return to the house, Mrs. Stevens met them at the door with a glad smile on her face and cried, she has come, Charles. Who? he asked. Adelpha Lesler. 
Mrs. Stevens saw an immediate change in the face of Cora. The features which had begun to glow with happiness suddenly grew sad and clouded, and the eyes drooped. Charles did not perceive that sudden change so apparent to his mother, for at the announcement of the arrival of one whom he had known in his happy childhood days, his heart bounded with joy. Where is she, mother? With Goody Nurse. He hastily took leave of Cora, who, with an oppressive weight on her heart, which seemed to almost suffocate her, went to the little room in which she had known so much joy and misery. All was dark now. Her heart vibrated painfully in her breast. Hope and joy seemed forever banished. He was gone. She could hear his footsteps moving away from the house, and throwing herself on the couch, she gave way to a fit of weeping. Never did Cora Waters so feel her utter insignificance and loneliness. She was a child of an indented slave, utterly dependent on the one whom she had had the audacity to love. When she realized how unworthy she was, the unfortunate girl sobbed half aloud. O oh God, why didst thou create me with desires and ambitions above my sphere? Why didst thou cast me into this place where I would meet him only to suffer? Father, father, come and take me hence. Meanwhile, Charles Stevens, unconscious of her suffering, was hurrying as rapidly as he could to the home of Goody Nurse, where he was to meet Adelpha Lesler. He reached the house and was greeted by a tall, beautiful young woman with great black eyes and hair. The greeting she gave him was warm, almost ardent, for although Adelpha was an accomplished young lady, she had all of the genial warmth of youth. They were soon talking pleasantly of those happy days of long ago. Glorious past, gone like a golden dream to return no more. The very memory of such pleasure produces pain, because it is forever gone. Great changes had come since last they met. His father was living then. A handsome, strong man, noted for his kindness of heart. Many friends, who now existed only in pleasant remembrance, then lived, breathed, and moved upon the earth. Then he loved Adelpha, and she loved him, and he half hoped that his meeting in mature life would reproduce the pleasant sensations of childhood. But there is a love which is not love of the thoughtless and the young, a love which sees not with the eyes and hears not with the ears, but in which soul is enamoured of soul. The cave-nursed Plato dreamed of such a love. His followers sought to imitate it, but it is a love that is not for the multitude to echo. It is a love which only high and noble natures can conceive. And it has nothing in common with the sympathies and ties of coarse affections. Wrinkles do not revolt it. Homeliness of features do not deter it. It demands youth only in the freshness of emotions. It requires only the beauty of thought and spirit. Such a love steals on when one least suspects and takes possession of the soul. Such a love cannot be uprooted by admiration or fancy. Charles Stevens found Adelpha grown so beautiful, so witty and accomplished, 
that he was awed in her presence at first, but her freedom of manner removed all restraint, and in an hour they seemed transported back to childhood's happy hours. Next day they wandered as they had done in earlier years, by purling streams and mossy banks, under cool shadows of friendly trees. Every old playground and hallowed spot was visited once more, and they lived over those joyous scenes of childhood. "'I sometimes wish that childhood would last forever,' said Charles. "'Childhood brings its joys, but its sorrows as well,' Adelpha answered, as she sat on the mossy bank at his side, her bright eyes on his face. "'One would grow weary of never advancing.' Don't you remember how, in your boyhood, you looked forward with pleasure to the time when you would be a man? I do. And how you planned for a glorious future? I remember it all. To doom you to perpetual childhood, to constantly have those hopes of being a man blasted, would eventually bring you to endless misery. No, Charles, childhood, to be happy and joyous, must be brief. The youth with ambition longs to enter man's estate. He sees life only in its rosiest hues, and his hopes and anticipations form half his happiness. Your words, Adelpha, teach me how foolish and idle was my remark. Let us change the subject to something more practical. Will your father, as governor of New York, be disturbed? Her face grew sad. I have great fears. For what? Father and Jacob Milbourne may be declared usurpers. But it was on the accession of William and Mary to the throne of England that your father became governor. True, it was not until Andros had been seized in Boston, imprisoned and sent to England, that my father suggested the seizure of Fort James. He was made commander, and afterward governor, and so holds his office to this day. I don't know how William and Mary, our dread sovereigns, will be affected by this seizure of the government in New York. It was in their interest. It was so intended, but we have all learned not to put our trust in princes. It is quite dangerous to do so, and I sometimes fear the trouble will come of it. Surely, Adelpha, one of your happy turn of mind would not borrow trouble. It will come quite soon enough without, and a philosopher would wait until it comes rather than seek it. You are right, Charles. Let us be young again, romp in the wood, chase butterflies, and forget the dark clouds that may be hovering over us. She started to her feet and asked, Charles, who is that lovely but shy young girl whom I see hurrying along the path? He looked in the direction indicated by Adelpha's jewelled finger, and said, She is Cora Waters. And who is Cora Waters? A very sweet and amiable girl, tarrying here for the present. Her father was a player, and he became involved in the rebellion in England. Charles did not care to tell all, for Cora was a disagreeable subject to discuss with Adelpha, but the companion of his childhood was not to be so easily put off. Charles, she is very pretty. Why have you not told me of her before? I did not suppose you would be interested in her, the young man answered. 
not interested in her, with all the romance attached to her, a child reared in old England, of which I have heard so much, the daughter of a player, perchance an actress herself. Oh, Charles, I am very anxious to see her and talk with her. Adelpha, do you forget that she is a player? Oh, no, we descendants of the Netherlands look on such things in a far different light from the fanatical Puritans of New England. I must know this Cora Waters. You shall. As Charles strolled away from the spring with Adelpha, the face of Sarah Williams appeared from behind some bushes. Her jet-black eyes flashed with fire, and her teeth gnashed, until they threatened to crack between her angry jaws. He hath another! Which of the two doth he love most? I will know, and then woe betide her! Sarah Williams was cunning and utterly unscrupulous. As she glared after Charles and Adelpha, her fertile brain was forming a desperate, wicked scheme. She watched them until they disappeared over the hill, and then, turning about, walked hurriedly to the parsonage. Adelpha, who was a merry, light-hearted girl, in love with all the world, insisted on forming the acquaintance of Cora, until Charles, to gratify her, granted her request, and the maids met. Cora was distant and conventional, while Adelpha was warm-hearted and genial. They came to like each other, despite the fact that each looked on the other as a rival. Cora had given up Charles Stevens, realizing that she was inferior and unworthy in every sense, and certainly not capable of competing with the daughter of the Governor of New York. On the other hand, Adelpha saw a dangerous rival in this mysterious maid, with eyes of blue and hair of gold. But Adelpha was honest and true, as were the old knickerbockers who followed her. She realized the maid's power, and, in her frank and open manner, loved her rival. Despite the fact that they were rivals, the girls became friends, and as Adelpha had learned more of Cora's trials, she gave her the full sympathy of her warm, loving heart. Sarah Williams, who watched them with no little interest, asked herself, I know he loves both. Can a man wed two? No, he must choose between the two, so I will stand between. Charles, on account of his superior education, was regarded as an extraordinary personage. He was gloomy and sad of late, for Sarah Williams, with her keen woman's instinct, had probed his secret. He was troubled to know which maid he loved most. Cora, with her melancholy beauty, appealed to his strong emotions. But Adelpha, with her fine figure, her great dark lustrous eyes and charming manner, seemed equally attractive. If Cora were the stream that ran deepest, Adelpha was the one that sparkled brightest. At one moment he was ready to avow his love for one, and the next moment he was willing to swear eternal fealty to the other. Late one afternoon, he wandered with Cora at his side across the flowery meadow to a point of land presenting a grand and picturesque view of green fields, blue hills, and the distant sea. They had come to watch the sunset, and Charles wished to be alone with Cora, that he might sound the depths of his heart and ask himself if he really loved her. 
Her father was to come in a few days and take her away to the far-off wilderness, so if he spoke the promptings of his soul, he must do it now. Long they sat on the grassy knoll and watched the declining sun. How long have you known Adelpha? Cora asked. We were children together. Has she always lived in New York? Yes, but our grandparents knew each other. Matthew Stevens had a Dutch friend, Hans van Brandt, whom he met in Holland. When van Brandt emigrated to New Amsterdam and Matthew Stevens to New Plymouth, they renewed their friendship. Their descendants have always kept up the friendship. Matthew Stevens was my grandfather, and Hans van Brandt was Adelpha Lesler's great-grandfather. When quite a child, Adelpha's mother, the wife of a prosperous New York merchant, spent a year in Boston, where I lived. It was then Adelpha and I first became acquainted. Cora's eyes were on the distant blue hills, but her thoughts seemed elsewhere. Charles would have given much to have known what was in her mind. Did she, in her heart, entertain hatred for Adelpha? Her remark a moment later convinced him to the contrary. Adelpha is a lovely maid, and as good as she is beautiful, her lot is a happy one. There was no bitterness, no regret in the remark, yet her words were so sad that they went to the heart of Charles. Cora, there is such a difference in the lots of people that sometimes I almost believe God is unjust. Charles, she cried, quite shocked. Hear me out before you condemn me, Cora. Here is Adelpha, who has known only sunshine and happiness, health and prosperity. She was born in a wealthy family, and has all the luxuries that riches can buy. She is good and deserves them, interrupted Cora. God has rewarded her. But, on the other hand, you are just as good, yet your life has been one of bitterness. Misery seems to steal some people at their birth, but sometimes there come changes in the lives of people. All may run smoothly for a while, then storms gather about the head of the child of fortune, while, on the other hand, to one who has fought and struggled through storms and adversity, a peaceful harbour may open. Cora suddenly said, God forbid, Charles, that our lots should be reversed. I would not have Adelpha Lesler drain the cup of bitterness as I have done. But we must change our subject, for, see there, Adelpha and Alice Corey are coming. He looked up and saw the two near at hand. Alice Corey was a bright-eyed girl of fourteen, a niece of Goody Nurse, who had been accused of witchcraft. She was a girl of a light and happy disposition, and as yet care sat lightly on her brow. "'Watching the sunset, are you?' said Adelpha, breathless with rapid walking. "'We have been,' answered Charles. "'Well, it is a pretty thing to see, and I wish he would always be setting,' declared Alice Corey. "'A child's wish,' answered Adelpha. "'What would become of your flowers?' I am sure I don't know. I do so love that red tinge over there, just where it touches the grey. It is somewhat like that queer seashell which Cora showed me yesterday, said Adelpha. What splendid paints these mermaids must use down in their deep-sea caves! 
It is a kind that does not rub off with waiting. The shells are their pink sauces. What? Do they really paint? cried the credulous Alice. Charles Stephen laughed softly and answered, No, child, you must not believe such stories. I will tell you a prettier one if you listen. Oh, I'll listen, cried Alice, who, like all children, was ever ready to give ears to a story. Charles began. Once upon a time, long before Adam and Eve lived, I believe it was, while the earth was young, there lived on it a fair, radiant maiden, sweeter than the breath of fresh-blown roses, and more lustrous than the morning star. All the world was her own paradise, and she traversed it as she chose, finding everywhere trees bearing golden fruit, which never turned to ashes, flowers in perpetual bloom, fountains that bubbled, and birds that sang in the linden groves, all for her. Nothing was forbidden her. No cares, no fears or griefs marred her pleasures, for she had no law to consult but her own wishes. When she would eat, the trees bent down their boughs and whispered, Choose my fruit. When she would listen, the birds vied with each other in their melodies. When she would walk, the green sod was proud to bear her, and when weary, the gentlest flower-laden zephyrs soothed her to rest. Thus she might have remained always happy, but one day she chanced to see herself in the water, and she thought how everything else was double. Then she became conscious of a strange pain. Everything now lost its charm. She sought a companion, but she could find none. Nothing was wanting, but the thing she most desired, the sight of her own kin. At last she instinctively felt that the burning gaze of a lover was bent upon her face, and looking up she saw only the sun in the sky, shining as though myriads needed his light. Alas, she sighed, he is as lonely as I, and he shall be my lover. But the sun was coy and timid. He gazed proudly at her from a great distance, and veiled himself behind a cloud when she would see him, that his brightness might not harm her. But he never came nigh. At last, when she was worn out with longing for a closer companionship, she set out to find her adored son. And, as she sighed, Shall I find him never? Someone from a grotto nearby answered. Ever? Who are you? cried the maid. I am a bodiless spirit, was the answer, the voice of one that is gone. I tell impossible things. I am the shadow of the past, the substance of events to come. Man is a mocker. Can you tell me where to find my lover? asked the maid. Echo told her not to look up for him, for he was too high above her, not to seek him in the east, for then he was hastening away, but to seek him in the west, where he laid himself and rested at night, for the night was made for lovers. Then she hastened joyously till she came to the extreme west, to the very edge of the world. How could she get to the edge when it is round? interrupted Alice. 
"'Probably the world was not round at that time,' explained Adolpha. Charles went on. The maid summoned all the powers of nature and the air, and bade them build a palace. It was not like other palaces. There were no jewels there, but everything was warm and crimson and ruddy. The gates were parallel bars of cloud, and the west wind for warden. Crystals of raindrops paved the courtyard. The architecture was floating mists and delicate vapours, filled with a silent music that waited only for the warm touch of the player to melt it into soul-subduing harmonies, and along the galleries ran a netted fringe of those tender whispers which only the favoured may hear. So she built her palace, and filled it with all things such as she thought the sun would like, not forgetting an abundance of fire to warm him, lest even her love would prove insufficient for one of so fiery a nature. Then she dismissed her attendants, and sat down alone to wait his coming. The days seemed long and drear and weary, but she had seen him watching her, and he was coming at last. Down the slope he glided, holding his fiery steeds in check. There was joy for the desolate one, for her lover was coming. But the pitiless sun descended and swept by, scorning the open gates, and her siren voice that would have wooed him thither. The next day passed, and the next, and the next, and she was still disappointed, but she could not believe that all her labour had been in vain, and still she nursed her sickly dying hope. Though that sun had set thousands of times since then, she hopes for their union still. In the daytime, the palace is dark like the clouds, but as evening approaches, she lights it up for his coming. Then we see those glorious tints of crimson and gold and purple and dun, dimming till they mingle with the white clouds above, and, were we near enough, we might possibly hear the tones of the reviving music as it melts, but as the sun goes fairly down, the music hushes, the beautiful tints fade and die, the palace becomes a dark spot again, and the poor little watcher within sighs forth her disappointment and composes herself to wait for another sunset. "'I don't believe your story, Charles Stevens,' said Alice at the conclusion, "'and I don't see what good it does anyhow to make up such a one as that. "'The moral in it is man's faithlessness and woman's constancy,' "'put in Cora Waters, who had for a long time been silent. "'Adelpha, who had watched the sun sink beneath the distant blue hills "'as she listened to Charles, now chanced to glance over her shoulder at the sea behind, with the moon just rising above the watery horizon, and with a merry peal of laughter she added, Charles, your heroine is more dull than modern maids, or, when the sun jilted her, she would have wooed the moon. Alice, rising, said, It is growing dark. Let us go home. Alice? "'Are you afraid of the witches which seem to disturb Mr. Paris and Cotton Mather?' asked Adelpha. "'There are no witches,' Alice Corey answered with a shudder. "'Father and mother both deny that there are any witches, "'and it is wrong to cry out against my aunt, Goody Nurse.' 
I dare say it is. The evening grows chill. Let us go home. As the four wended their way across the fields and meadows, Charles Stevens, who walked between Cora and Adelpha, cast alternately furtive glances at each, sorely troubled to decide which he liked best. Both are beautiful, he thought. Ere long I must wed, and which of the twain shall it be? Both are beautiful, and both are good, but unfortunately they are two, and I am one. The child, who had lingered behind to pluck a wild flower, at this moment came running after them, calling, Wait, wait, I implore you, wait for me. What have you seen, Alice? A black woman. The girls were almost ready to faint, but Charles, who was above superstition, bade them be calm, and hurried through the deepening shades of twilight to the trees on the hill where the woman had been seen. He came in sight of the figure of a woman clothed in black, "'sitting at the root of an oak. "'Who are you?' he asked, advancing towards her. "'Charles Stevens,' she gasped, raising her head. "'Sarah Williams, what are you doing here?' "'Prithee, what are you doing?' she asked. "'This is unaccountable.' "'She rose, and turning her white face to him, said, "'Charles Stevens,' "'Which of the twain do you love best?' "'And she pointed to Cora and Adelpha. "'He made no answer. "'Which of the twain is it?' she repeated. "'Aye, Charles Stevens, you shall never wed either. "'Do you hear?' "'Woman, what do you mean? "'You cannot decide which you love most. "'Wed neither, Charles. Wed me.' "'You?' he cried in astonishment. "'Yes, why not?' "'You already have a husband.' "'No, he is dead. He was lost at sea. I am still young and fair, and wherefore not choose me?' Charles Stevens burst into a laugh, half merriment and half disgust, and turned from the bold, scheming woman. She followed him for a few paces, saying in tones low but deep, "'Verily, Charles Stevens, you scorn me.' but I will yet make you repent that you ever treated my love with contempt. You shall rue this day. He hurried away from the annoyance, treating her threats lightly, and little dreaming that they would be fulfilled. Winter came and passed, and Adelpha Lesler still lingered at Salem. Rumours of trouble came to her ears from home, but the light-hearted girl gave them little thought. One morning in May, 1691, Charles met her, coming to seek him. Her face was deathly white, and her frame trembling. What has happened, Adelpha? There is trouble at home, Charles, she cried. Father and Milbourne have been arrested and imprisoned, and I fear it will fare hard with them. I want to set out for New York at once. Will you accompany me? I will. They found his mother and Cora, and told them all. He implored Cora to remain with his mother until he returned, which she consented to do. End of chapter 11 Recorded by Alvera